You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. Hi, I'm Brian Williams, and we're back with the small print today. And today my guest is Andrew Blades, who's one of the most interesting people I've had the pleasure of meeting. So to start with, I'd like you, Andrew, please to introduce yourself and what it is that you're doing right now. Thanks, Bronwyn, and it's a pleasure to see you again. So I've worked in uncertainty and navigating uncertainty for about 30 years. I currently work for uh, the the Australian government in a role where we're looking at risk and long-term risk issues. Fantastic. So what do you want to explain a little bit about what you do in a day-to-day job working in risk and related industries? So it's, it's really about looking at what could happen. Um, and I specialise very much in high impact, low probability events. So those areas where we can't really measure what the likelihood of something's going to be or the, you can't assess the probabilities. So if I, I use an example, uh, and I remember the day quite well, it was the 11th of November 2019. I was asked what could really bring a project undone in a big way. And we came up with major bushfires, followed by some pandemic influenza, followed by more major bushfires. And we were told there's no way that would happen. Uh, that's, that's, that's just on the edge of plausibility. We don't think that's a credible idea. 2019, 2020, Australia had the worst bushfires on record. And of course, we were introduced to COVID-19. Yeah, so it's been a good year for prediction, but a bad year for, for actual actually living through what's, what's happening yes. in the world right now. Because I think that's something that you and I have in common. A lot of our work is essentially being some sort of prophet warning people not to do things or to get prepared. And Very when much. we are right about what happens, we've actually failed at our roles in preventing disasters from unfolding. So it's the great irony of working in the world of, of foresight and risk management is that when you write, you're wrong. And when you're wrong, you're sometimes more right. I'm, I'm not sure if you'd agree with that perspective, but that's definitely what I found in my side of the world. I, I'd agree with it very much. Uh, there are a lot of things you, you would rather be wrong than be right when you're developing a forecast or trying to reframe the way people think about what could happen. Yeah, so we invited you on the show because you're someone that actually works with governments. And this show is about trying to empower people, that's citizens of democracies, to be more proactive and more involved in participating in their democracies. Because that's definitely something that I found is a challenge. We tend to be very passive sort of beneficiaries or customers of democracy, but not necessarily participating in the political processes or understanding the policies that are being designed to protect us and to control us and to do all those wonderful things. We just see, sort of choose a color t-shirt or pick a political party every four or five years and sit back and hope that things are going to work out okay. And I'm sure there's many people are listening to this call, many people all across the world who have various different reservations as to how their different governments have actually responded to what happened in 2020. As you were saying, everything from bushfires to pandemics, a whole lot of chickens came home to roost. And I think that a lot of people are starting to question now the validity and the wisdom of sort of seceding all that control and authority to central powers, to governments, without being actually involved in that decision making. Because of course, every source of policy has a whole lot of consequences, many of which are unintended and many of which are intended. And one of the most interesting things that I saw last year was actually an article that you posted online talking about very early in the 2020 sort of COVID crisis, 
the response and some of the risks to those response when it came to issuing policies to try and control the virus, to mitigate the spread and all the rest of it. And the article you posted spoke about how good leaders don't go into battle without an exit plan in play. And I thought that was a very, very intriguing idea. And I wanted to get your comments on whether you think any of the leaders that you've observed across the world, including your own or my own based in South Africa, did do that, did go into battle against the, these natural crises with an exit plan in place, or have we been seeing some sort of more reactionary type leadership in play? I think across the board, we've very much seen a reactionary response. And, and it's very difficult within a media cycle for a leader to be able to think through when I take step A, what might steps B, C, D and E look at? We, we can often get this idea of cause and effect, but the idea of what are the secondary, tertiary and quaternary impacts and outcomes. And the other thing is we talk a lot about complexity. Nine times out of 10, we're talking about complication, but this really is a complex space because we don't know how people are going to react to an intervention. I think the other thing is we've already got people saying, oh, look how well country A or country B or country C ran this or how they didn't run it. The reality is those answers are going to be available in about 10 years' time. Uh, who locked down? How long did they lock down for? How did they manage the lockdown? Uh, the, the Swedish model's been brought up a number of times. They haven't sort of gone down that path. Uh, and it's very easy to say, well, 3,000 people died of COVID, but we're now starting to say, but how many people committed suicide as a result of what happened? How many people haven't gone to a doctor to get a diagnosis for a chronic illness? Uh, and what may those deaths look like? So I know within Australia, there's been a decrease in cancer reporting. Now it's possible that there is just less cancer. It's more probable that people aren't going to their doctors and getting medical advice. So we're very quick to say when something goes well, it's because I'm a, a brilliant leader and I, I had the foresight and I developed the strategy. They're less likely to turn around and say, I was just very lucky on the day. Like Australia is a very big island. It's got the ability to shut its borders and not worry about leakage through land borders. There aren't many countries that can do that. Um, so our ability to control the COVID response here has been around our ability to lock our borders down. But if you look at Europe or continental Africa, where you can't just lock a border down and have no seepage, that gets a lot, lot harder. We also have fundamentally have a, a sound communication system. Uh, it's easy to communicate with a large chunk of the community, but we've also seen there have been issues in called communities, so cultural and linguistic diverse uh, communities, where English isn't a first language. In some cases, it's not even a second or third language. It might be a fourth language. And there's been a lot of questions around how that's worked and what do those decisions mean? And do people understand what's behind the decision? Uh, and I think that's a, a key thing when we're looking at a lot of things around the world. Every government's quick to say what a great job we did until it starts to come undone. And then it's, oh, well, we're, we're unlucky. Nobody turns around and says the decision we made eight months ago has influenced what's happening today. Very good point. I think the other point to note here is the whole thing of what gets measured gets managed. What number is it that you're looking at? And we know this from the world of business and from the world of politics. If you focus on a particular number, you're, you can probably affect that number. But what are the numbers that we are 
not looking at? And what are your views as someone that works in the risk space about some of those metrics that could be not being measured right now and not being managed that could end up having, as you said, those sort of nth order effects over the next 10 years? You mentioned things like suicide and, and cancer rates and uh, misdiagnoses. Absolutely, those are definitely things that I'm also tracking for some of the clients that I have that work in the financial and insurance space. But what are the, some of the other numbers that perhaps we haven't looked at in our pursuit of one particular, trying to manage one particular target or metric here? So there's a couple of things around metrics. One is we often measure what's easy to measure, not what we need to measure. Like it's easy to measure the number of deaths. Uh, it's not as easy to measure what's the long-term health, health effects or something. And that can be very hard to measure particularly when you're relying on people for self-reporting and they just don't self-report. So you've got that, that dark figure. And the other thing that I would point out is often when we're measuring things, it's giving us awareness of what's happening. It doesn't necessarily help us understand. So I think we measure a lot of things and we don't actually understand what that means. Uh, and it's, it's that next move to what does that measurement actually tell us? In some cases, the answer is not a great deal, uh, but it's easy to measure, so I'm going to measure it. Um, for me, there's a big piece here in the uncertainty space, and, and we talk about this as an unprecedented event. Well, of course, there was the, the 1918 flu. Uh, what a lot of people mean in, when they say this is unprecedented is it's unprecedented in my experience. So maybe you need to go and find somebody who's got broader experience than yourself. Uh, I talk a lot about cognitive diversity, that just because you look like I look doesn't mean you think like I, I think. And just because you look different to me doesn't mean you think differently. Uh, so how do we bring a range of views to the table and what do those views contribute to the way we, we, we understand those metrics? And I, this comes back to part of the power dynamics that you were discussing before. We have a lot of people that invite people to the table, let them speak, but then don't listen to them. Uh, and it's this, it's a tokenism of saying, well, we had all these inputs, but we still did what we were going to do anyway. <laughs> Sorry. The, so there's that, that broader piece about why are we measuring? Does it help us understand? Um, I'm quite a fan of small data and interpretive data of going and doing interviews with people and saying, okay, this is the trend, but why, why are you choosing not to buy this product? Or why have you chosen to go and do something else? because that then helps you understand, well, 10% of the population is doing X, but why? What's the thinking behind that? And that's not easy to measure. You can't just run a quick survey or count the number of people that are going down a particular path. For me, that's a really important piece of understanding why a trend's happening and identifying the weak signals that may indicate that uh, the trend's about to change. So we talk a lot about connecting the dots and I don't know whether you had them when you were a child, but I used to have the join the dot books when I was a very young child. But they didn't just give me a page of 2000 dots and say, find the teddy bear. They there was clear lines that you had to draw. You followed from one to two. So there's that piece about how does somebody identify the non dots when I've got all that data there? How do I sift through it and say, these bits aren't relevant. These bits are relevant. And how does it all sort of plug into wider systems? 
That makes a lot of sense. I like what you were saying earlier about diversity. I refer to it as sort of 3D diversity. It's not just sort of filling out the demographic scorecards, making sure you've got all the right colors, shapes, and sizes and numbers. It's also about having a diversity of background and experience. I think that there's a lot of richness in that conversation as to what played out and how policies were adopted sort of for one's own good or for society's own good last year. What was very interesting to me as someone that works in the consumer trend space and has a lot of conversations, has a lot of research with different groups, was how the groups that were supposed to be protected by the policies, particularly therefore the elderly and the poorer people in our populations, were sometimes those whose direct interests were most against the policies that were implemented and how the people that were supposed to be doing the protecting, young, healthier, professional working people, very much like myself, were much more supportive of policies that were put into place. And this I did find quite interesting and that what we assume to be for someone's own good is not necessarily what that person themselves values as being good. So we can take anecdotal evidence, or in fact, there have been some studies that we've done on it with elderly people who were quite lonely, who would have preferred to take on more risk for themselves in order to have a better quality of life for the time that they had left. But society was sort of making those decisions on their behalf and saying, you know, length of life is worth more than quality life for you, which I thought, I thought was quite interesting. So I'm not sure if you do have any insight or if you are at liberty to discuss such things as to how decisions are made when it comes to governments trying to react to policies as to whose good really is the greater good and who is consulted in this and what metrics are being looked at as priorities. We did speak earlier about what gets measured does get managed. Yeah. What are the things that have been managed? And then we can obviously have a conversation as to whether those are things that actually benefit us as the citizen consumer voter that is supposed to be the beneficiary of this good. So I often use the phrase absence of evidence is an evidence of absence. Uh, so, and it's that the squeaky wheel gets the oil. You'll, you'll have people that are talking and we've recently gone through a Royal Commission in, into aged care. The stories that you get are always the bad stories. Very few people come forward to an inquiry and go, actually, my experience has been fine. Uh, if, if you're running a, a restaurant or you're running a retail outlet, I expect that when I go to your outlet, things will go smoothly. And if they do, I don't say, I want to speak to the manager. It's been a great experience or it was exactly what I expected. When things go wrong, then I start to speak. Uh, and that, that's, that's true of most people. Uh, and I think it's this, how do we make sure that we're getting all the views on the table? Because it can be very hard to get your voice heard when there's a very loud group that's speaking. And sometimes it's not that they're that loud, but the media amplifies what they're saying. Because you don't sell media by just saying, no, everything went as to plan today. Uh, and I often, use, I often use the example of, when you arrive at work on time, your boss doesn't come and say, wow, you're at work on time. Explain how that happened. When you're late or you're late to a meeting, people apologize, got caught in traffic, this happened, that happened. When nothing happens, nobody explains what's happening. And, and I think when we look at some of these situations, what, you, what you're seeing is a particular group or a, sometimes a particular person is pushing a particular point. I'll use the word, they've got their own barrow and that's what they're pushing. And that's, get, that's what gets caught up with it. The media is not going to be able to sell a news and not be able to sell the advertising space that goes with the news if the answer is, no, everything went fine today. Uh, most of the time, 
I have positive experiences with doctors and dentists. I, I don't have a doctor or dentist phobia. Uh, other people have one bad experience and that colors their whole life. But when, when things are just going along normally, people don't tend to comment on it. So I think it can be very hard for a policy decision maker who is often elected to cut through all the noise that I'm hearing is bad news. Uh, but what am I not hearing? What's the evidence that tells me there might be something else happening? So uh, uh, an organisation that I was working with not so long ago, uh, they had a, a webinar, questions and answers, and people got to ask the questions of what concerns they had. And the comment was made, 90% of the, the comments that we were getting were around about a particular issue. 90% of the comments came from about 20 people asking a lot of questions. The organization's got over a thousand people working for it. So how do you know that, that 20, those 20 people are representative of everyone else? And where are you going to look for the evidence that says they're not, that's not accurate? It's very easy just to take the evidence that's flowing to you. It's a lot harder to go out and look at where's the evidence that suggests an alternative and why do those people have an alternative view? Now, they might just be happy to be quiet and go with whatever happens. They might fundamentally be happy. But if you don't go out and ask those questions, you won't find the answers. And we all know that you can rig a survey to deliver a particular result. So it's not that hard to sort of set up a survey or, or so I want to confirm this bad story as opposed to saying I want to disconfirm the bad story. So it's that, that, it's that critical thinking and actually looking for what are the views of other people and how representative of, is this? But the other thing is that, you know, that a policy decision needs to fit across a wide range of people. It's very difficult to customise a policy to a population of 26 million people in Australia. So, so what you get is we think, we think this is the, the best outcome across the board and this is the one that's getting... Uh, the least amount of negative feedback to us. So that's what we're going to go with. So we've, we've recently shut our borders to India until the 15th of May. Uh, one survey says there's a lot of people upset about this. You've got another survey saying roughly 60% of people are, are okay with it. Their survey numbers are about 2000. I'm sure they followed routine surveying processes, but we've also learned that surveys are often not as accurate as we like them to be. Right? Trump was never going to be elected. UK was never going to be, leave the EU, uh, th there's no end of things that say that maybe the polls and the way we poll aren't as good as we'd like them to be. Yes, yeah, so there's two things I wanted to pick up on from what you were saying there. The first one being the tyranny of the minority. How do we actually guard against that? So this is something that does fascinate me quite a lot, particularly when it comes to managing large groups and dealing with large groups. That whole concept of the squeaky wheel getting the attention and getting what they want to the detriment of the, the larger, more tolerant majority is a very interesting concept because if you've got a small group of your population say two percent who is adamant that they will not do option a or that they cannot stand option a but everyone else kind of prefers option a the other sort of 99 percent of the population prefers option a but they're not militantly opposed to option b but the intolerant will only accept option b you end up with a case that the majority is sort of disenfranchised because they happen to be more tolerant and unfortunately that does push policy towards 
more extremism over time. That, and concepts like the Overton window speak to that quite a lot too, where intolerant views sort of push everyone else to be silent because it's just simply not worth the fight. And that's okay on occasion. It's not okay when it becomes the norm, when the extreme majority's, <clears throat> excuse me, views tend to be sort of taken over over time, because that leads to sort of policy creep over time that leads to more and more you know, infringements onto liberties. So I'm quite interested in this whole concept of, of freedom and of many of our sort of standard classical liberal ideals about society, things like privacy, things like things like basic basic liberties and freedoms of speech are really common goods issues in that they're good for everyone, but they're only good if they are good for everyone. But at yep. the same time, every different group has an incentive to impinge on a little bit of those freedoms for their own points of view. But if everyone is allowed to impinge on the common good freedom, you end up with the same thing as the traditional sort of classic tragedy of the commons, where it all ends up getting destroyed. And we, <laughs> we end up with a very dystopian, very surveilled, very unfree society, not due to conspiracy or due to sort of a bad actors in government, but rather just because we constantly trying to accommodate the most extreme views in society. So I don't know if you have a comment on that point, but I will then want to move on to the differences between freedoms of information in democracies and more totalitarian states as a sort of follow on from that, just to sort of frame where we're heading in this conversation. So I, I think when you look at something as a very extreme view, and you've got a minority that's saying that the majority doesn't tend to want to move towards that. It, it's when it's I don't know, as, as an example, I eat meat. I'm a meat eater. If I went out with people who are vegetarians and they said, well, none of us eat meat. Can we go to a vegetarian restaurant? Yeah, I can have a vegetarian meal. Uh, so you, you start to get this bit where people go, oh, that's not too bad. I can accommodate that. And then it's a bit more and I can accommodate that. I'm not going to support it will be illegal to eat meat. But you get to a point that you've sort of shifted the center to one side or the other, left or right. And extreme doesn't seem as extreme as it did six months, 12 months, whatever it happens to be. And, and you skew what the norm becomes. And when I, when I talk about norm, I'm really talking bell-shaped curve and the people who are sitting in the middle of it. Yes. And, and, and even using the word normal, people saying, well, you can't use the word normal because nobody's normal. It has a meaning. Most people are like this. It's typical. I think what actually happens in a lot of cases is people go, oh, I can live with that. And they move a little bit. Oh, I can move it. And by the time they've moved to a certain point, people now turn around and say, well, but, but all these people have moved from eating meat to being vegetarians. Well, that's not really what I did. I just accommodated people around me who weren't pushing a particular political agenda on me, but I've got absorbed into it. And I, th I think we see this with a lot of things about, particularly around free speech. Is it offensive? Is it not offensive? Uh, and I'm, this happened about 10 years ago to me. I was in, in a seminar. I had a very robust discussion with an individual and somebody came up at the end of it and went, oh, you, that was really offensive. You know, are you okay? Do you want to make a complaint? I wasn't quite sure what I was supposed to be complaining about. I, I personally didn't find it offensive, but they found it offensive and and, and they found it offensive for me. Now, that might say something about me. Maybe I've got really thick skin. I don't know. But I, it, people seem to be getting very excited about getting offended for other people. Um, and it's, it's that question of saying, well, it might be offensive to you, but it's not necessarily offensive to me. And we've got this issue across age, 
gender, race, uh, ethnicity, cultural beliefs, that we seem so keen not to offend certain groups, whether that group's feeling offended or not. Um, and I think that, that's an area that we need to be very careful with the way we see it. The comments around the dominant culture benefits. The dominant culture in any society normally benefits because that's the middle of the bell-shaped curve and most things are geared around them. Now, I'm not saying we should persecute people who are, aren't in that, but there needs to be understanding if you're on the outside of that, things aren't going to be as good for you as they would be if you're in the middle. Can we do things to improve that? Yes, we can. I'm not saying that we should exclude anyone. But when you choose to move to a particular environment and the, the dominant group has a particular belief, you've got to sort of work out to what, what extent am I prepared to bend my beliefs or I, I don't want to live in that environment anymore. I, I want to move myself somewhere else. Now, that's easier for some groups and others. Some groups can obviously far more easily move from one nation to another, one, part, one culture to another. Yeah, in general, I would I would definitely agree that the way to sort of solve a lot of those sorts of problems with the fact when you've got majorities and minorities that have very conflicting views, but all trying to share the same space, that perhaps the world is better off and a happier place if we have more choices in, when it comes to our yeah. sort of places that we're able to live in, rather than more homogeneity. And I think that a lot of the, the problems that you're discussing there are taking place, particularly in larger countries that have just simply more people because it's just a numbers and maths game, right? So, I mean, if you've yeah. got a, a very large group and it's pretty much split 50-50 between a particular view, you're gonna be essentially having a country where 50% of people are annoyed pretty much 24 seven, whereas yeah. if they were able to, to live side by side with different sets of rules, you'd have almost 100% of people happy. So it's a case of having more choice. And there's probably marginal returns to scale of sizes of countries too, but that's perhaps just my own unique worldview. But I think it's a conversation worth having, particularly as we do run into conflicts where we end up in societies that we're having a sort of tyranny of the minority, which is no better really than a tyranny of the majority. I mean, it's yep. better and worse in different ways, but it definitely doesn't solve the underlying problems there. I think that's something we do need to be quite careful of. I'm not sure if you have a comment as to whether you've seen across the world policies in response to COVID in particular that have taken the sort of preference of the minority view rather than the majority view to the detriment of society at large. I can certainly think of a few examples where the sort of loudest, squeakiest voices in the room have got their way over certain, certain actions or, or prohibitions, for example, that the majority quite simply does not agree with, but was willing to go along with because it just simply wasn't the fight. Do you have any examples on that before we move on? Well, I think lockdown in a lot of places, it lock, lock, we know lockdown works as a tool. We also know it's a very blunt tool. Uh, we know it has ramifications. Uh, and I would observe in a couple of cases that I've seen without naming jurisdictions, that there's been a real fear campaign that COVID is gonna come and kill people in their thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands perhaps. And the only way to resolve this is lockdown. Other jurisdictions have demonstrated, actually, we've been able to do it differently. We've been able to lock down in pockets. We've been able to use better contact tracing. Obviously, that's that's not available to all communities, but it is available to some. But lockdown is very strong and it's very easy to sell on protecting you by locking everybody down. And look, the, the figures have come good. Yes, the figures have come good on COVID, but what are the ramifications of that? And we don't tend to think in systems, we tend to think in cause and effect, and then we move on to the next thing, as opposed to that cause will generate an effect, that effect now becomes a cause to something else. And what does that look like? 
And I think if you can generate enough concern in any population, it becomes a lot easier to control what they're going to do and how they're going to think. And it is the classic fear campaign, generate a lot of fear and then give a really simple solution to how you solve that problem. You, you, you don't hear, here's a lot of fear, this is the problem, this is the issue. I've now got a 32 point plan as to how I'm gonna re resolve that. It's, here's the fear, here's one thing you can do. It's simple, it's straightforward, wear it for four weeks and it'll all be good. And I think what we're now starting to see in some countries is the promise of lockdown is this will go away and we will be fine within 12 months. But what we're seeing is COVID's coming back uh, and it's reappearing in various places. And I struggle a lot with the term post COVID because COVID is here, it's not going away anytime soon. It may morph and adapt and be not as severe. We don't hear about the Spanish flu anymore. We just call it flu, but we don't live in a post Spanish flu world. We now live in a world that we can manage flu better, although it still kills people. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. It also comes back to how I opened this, talking about lockdowns in particular. You don't go into battle without an exit plan. And the narrative that was sold to populations was it's two weeks to flatten the curve, hard lockdowns, and then we will we'll have sorted this thing out. That was the, the sold exit plan. But it was never a practical exit plan. I mean, even myself, I'm not a epidemiologist by any stretch of the imagination, but logically speaking, it just didn't seem possible to me that you'd be able to stop uh, spreading virus within just two weeks, assuming absolutely everyone followed the rules across the whole world. That was the only way that was going to work. Clearly, we were sold something that was simply not possible. So from my perspective, it definitely felt to a large extent, it really still does, that our policymakers were treating us like children, but also like stupid children. They were, they were basically telling us, but they were, they, they were, insulting our intelligence by expecting us to believe the messages that were put out. And this becomes a very significant problem from policymakers, because when you insult people's intelligence and when you sort of basically laugh at the, at the criticism that comes of people saying, no, that's not going to make, that doesn't make any sense in, this, in a logical framework, but you kind of tell people, fall in line, follow the science, listen to the government, etc. When that, those promises fail to materialize, when two weeks turns into what some of us are looking at, like 18, 20 months now, yeah. you know, that's, that's a very different conversation. Unfortunately, that has horrible, vicious cycle effects in that it creates a climate of distrust where people then stop trusting science, stop trusting policymakers, but for very good reasons. So we have a huge trust deficit spiral that happened. So I think that a lot of the problems that we've seen do come down to the messaging, to the sort of lies to children that was told to populations, the way that governments try to hold information back or insult our intelligence with silly policies. I'm not sure if you know, in South Africa, we had a no crop bottom jeans policy. You were allowed to buy clothes, but only if they came lower than your knees. I mean, that sort of degree of micromanagement is just laughable and it undermines any sorts of authority that a credible policymaker would want to have to get people to buy into what it really is harsh, hard consequences. There's no easy solutions here. Whatever policy is taken, as you've said, it's not going to please everyone. There are going to be consequences, but you always have to get to a point where you are taking your populations into your confidence. After all, government and policymakers are supposed to work for the citizen, not the other way around. And there's a very fine line between rule by law and rule of law. 
And that brings me to the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about in terms of what's really fascinating to me, how messaging, fear messaging, like you've been speaking about, sort of lies to get people to buy into selling short, long-term policies as short-term policies and then blaming populations for not following the rules that were impossible to follow anyway, how messaging and narrative has been so important to what's unfolded and been so destructive to but there are a few of course examples where messaging has been done quite well and what fascinates me is the sort of perverse or the, or the direct incentives and contrasts between democratic nations and more totalitarian nations where in democracies everyone from the media to politicians to opposing nations governments is incentivized to present things as being worse than they really are, to hype up the fear. So if you, as you've said, if you're a journalist, you want to get clicks, you want to go with the drama, you want to criticize your government, you want to exercise your freedom, you want to call power to account. At the same time, governments are incentivized to sort of under-promise and over-deliver. And of course, opposing powers are incentivized to try and undermine those democracies. However, in totalitarian regimes where we have sort of one-party states, and we all know many examples over there, everyone is incentivized to portray things as being better than they are. Obviously, if you live in an unfree state, as a journalist, you don't want to criticize your government. You're going to sort of go along with the party line in order not to offend anyone or lose your job or your life as what could happen. The government, of course, is incentivized to lie to make itself look better than it really is. And foreign journalists are also incentivized to make totalitarian states look better than they are. And this fascinates me because coming back sort of full circle, those same journalists are incentivized to make their own governments look bad because that creates drama and story and drive and moves the whole sort of multi-party democracy system on. And that's been very fascinating, but also very disturbing because what has happened over the last year is what has sunk into consciousness, both in the sort of free, more Western nations and in your more totalitarian states is this idea that freedom is a bad thing because non-free states have been able to do COVID better, for example. So there's a sort of underlying subtext, the shifting in the Overton narrative, in the media, in the messaging coming out, that freedom is dangerous and that for your own good, we must give up things like freedom of speech, freedom of movement, and of course, sort of the ability just to sort of speak our minds and to, and to have, our, have our civil liberties back, perhaps, forever there's a sort of underlying very dangerous narrative going on that that we that we were wrong to have a free and open society before COVID, and that perhaps we should never go back to the way things are so i'm not sure if you would agree with that sort of growing subtext that that's it's an elephant in the room that, that everyone kind of thinks and everyone's talking about privately in their homes but no one's actually saying out loud but there does seem to be a huge shifting in that consciousness and i wonder if those incentives are something to do with it do you have a comment on that or do you think there's anything we could be doing to to change that narrative <laughs> Sort of Excuse reverse me. some of those incentives to get back to a point where you know things like democracy and freedom of movement and freedom of trade are are, are worth pursuing as human ideals or not. So I, I know you, I know you've read Yuval Harari's book *Sapiens*, um, and he talks a lot about um, uh, about the the speed at which the world has evolved. And we're still using a brain that was designed for 5,000 years ago. Uh, we're not using a brain that's designed for the complexity and the complication of the world in, in which we live. In Australia, a lot of the messages are, are 
pitched at somebody with a reading of ability of an eight to nine year old. So the, the, the messages are very simple and they're very concrete. If the press isn't prepared to engage in a nuanced discussion, recognizing there'll be a portion of the population that, that's not gonna follow that, it, it has to give very straightforward, very simple messages. And in that you lose an understanding of what's actually occurring. So again, it comes back to lockdown will only be for two weeks. You're only losing this freedom for two weeks, which then becomes two months, which then becomes 12 months, which then becomes two Normal. years. Normal. So you, again, you've moved the normal curve. You've, you've skewed what people consider as normal. So that would be one observation. Another observation is, is a lot of this is about marketing and spin. Uh, I, I watch news programs and I think you're not actually giving me news. What you're giving me is your opinion of what is happening. Uh, that may or may not be an informed opinion and you're portraying that as news. And I don't know about the education system in South Africa, but we don't spend a great deal of time teaching people critical thinking. Um, we don't spend a great deal of time thinking about, well, you've said that, what are your underlying assumptions? What, what actually supports that? Uh, as I said, we, we know that lockdown and quarantine works. We've known that since the Black Death, uh, but we also know it has side effects. Now, one of those side effects is if you, you keep pushing that, we're gonna lock down, lock down out far enough, people go, oh, well, this is a normal state of play. And if we lock down over COVID, what's the next thing we lock down over? If we start excluding people from coming into the country uh, because of COVID, what's the next thing we do that around? Uh, questions around what's offensive and what's, what's not offensive. It, it's very difficult in a multicultural society and Australia is quite multicultural, to say, well, what now is offensive? When you've got a homogenic uh, society, there's a lot of agreements on that's this is offensive and that's not offensive. A lot of that's changed. Um, so you've you've now got a quite a diverse range of views, and you see the chaos that goes with that. There's the, the, and the discussions that go around it, and having to be confronted with people who have different views to yourself. I got. I look at a lot of organisations that tell me how diverse they are, but you wouldn't want a voice of you other than the dominant narrative in that organisation because it'd be, well, you know, you're bucking the system, you're going against this, you know, but that's what diversity is. You, people view things differently to the way the dominant groups views it. Whereas you then look at uh, a far more authoritarian regime, where it's these are the rules. If you deviate from them, this is what happens to you. Sometimes what happens to you is, Quite horrendous but there's a degree of comfort in the certainty that goes with that and we've convinced ourselves almost as a human race that we can do a lot to remove the uncertainty uh, and we can i can make a prediction now what i can give you is some options as to what may happen in the future i can help you reframe your views i can help you understand that today uh, may not look like what yesterday did or tomorrow may not look like what today does but I can't give you certainty. And most people like certainty. Now, when you say that to people, they sort of think about it a bit. But we, we search for uncertainty in a lot of what we're doing. I, I often say to people when we start talking about uncertainty is, you know, how about I just tell you the ending of the movie that you're going to see? And then you'll be certain and you won't need to 
but you know, I, 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 I want to go with the journey. So it's, it's when people are feeling that uncertainty, if I don't know what to do, and it's unprecedented. We've never seen this before. Uh, like Google, we've never seen a corporation with this much power before. Really? What about the British and Dutch East Indies companies that used to have their own judges, their own armies, their own navies? We have seen this before. I go back to what I said before. Unprecedented means I've not seen it before. Here's a history book. Try reading it. Bit of cynicism there. Uh, but, you know, what we've done in the past sets us up for what's going to happen in the future. Both we, we, sh we stand on the shoulders of giants and we reap what we sow. So the seeds that we put down, in some cases 200 years ago, with the way we, we treated groups that were colonised um, and we've traded different different uh, races, different nationalities, different ethnicities, some of those things run really, really deep. And people remember how their great-grandparents were treated. And they were treated by people that sort of look like you, sound like you, and come from sort of roughly where in the world you come from. And I, I, I still hold that against you, despite the fact that individual may not have had anything about it. So there's, there's this certainty with it. And I think those authoritarian regimes that lay down very clear rules, if you stick to these rules, you will be all right. And by and large, that's true. You follow, in some cases, quite literally the party line and good things will happen to you. Deviate from it and bad things will happen to you. If you go back to medieval Europe, it wasn't that different with the Christian church of the day. No, these are the rules. Follow the rules, you'll be fine. And it was that fear message. You're all going to burn in hell unless you come to church on Sundays and give a donation, and then you won't. Big problem, I've solved it simply. Uh, and that, that's uh, that degree of certainty that is given by the one-party state uh, or authoritarian regimes that you follow this bouncing ball. But you're always going to get groups that say, yeah, but I, I don't benefit from this system, so how do I kick against it? Uh, and I think you, you, you tend to see extremes there. So Australia has two major political parties. It, it falls out that roughly 75% of the population, maybe a bit less, votes on, on those party lines. Uh, then you've got roughly 25% of the population who are swinging voters and they change from time to time. Now in Australia, it's compulsory to attend a polling place on the day of voting. So they don't have to worry about getting you out to vote. You have to get come out to vote. The political parties spent hundreds of millions on dollars are getting 25% of the population to change their mind. Now I've, I'm a swinging voter. I'm very open about that. I change which party I vote from time to time, depending on what I think is best. I take great delight that people spend so much money trying to get me to change my mind. So I, I, I think it's that. I think it's the how do you engage in a, a, a rich liberal debate uh, about what we should and shouldn't do. But equally, if you're going to engage in that debate, at the end of the day, you have to be relatively comfortable that I've, I've had my chance to have my say now the decision is going to be made. It might go my way. It might not go my way. And I think what we're seeing in some liberal democracies is people are saying, I don't feel as though I've got the chance to have my say. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not rich enough. It's, it's only the rich get to have their say or only this group gets to have their say. And to some extent, that's a reflection of who's in power in any given country at any given time. But I think that it, that's what's starting to concern people. I, one, I'm not getting to have my say. And two, if I do, I don't feel as though I'm being heard. And it comes back to this thing of people just go, well, 
it's going to happen anyway. I'm, I'm not going to fight, fight against it. And so you get these minority groups skewing the norm one way or the other. The thing that concerns me more than anything is when we start to skew that too much to one side, uh, at some point the wrecking ball gets let go and it comes back the other way and you can end up far worse than you were before you started the process. Definitely. That can definitely happen. I think the other thing to pick up on there, also coming back to that sort of voter apathy or postalgia or thinking that whatever we do doesn't really matter. We trapped in this two-party system. Things are only going to edge a little bit one way or the other is what's happening with the sort of size and scale of, of government over time. So any democracy starts off with a blank state or any sort of new revolution starts with a blank state. Very, very quickly, government tends to compound. It never seems to unravel. So and what's happened and what's definitely accelerated over the last year is coming back to those sort of classic freedoms of freedom of movement, freedom of speech, basically like uh, privacy rights, those sort of very liberal values is that over time they get they get eroded and they, they never seem to come back. The norm only seems to shift in one direction. And I think a lot of this has to do with what you were saying that many, many people, what they deeply desire at the end of the day is security. But what people don't necessarily understand that there's a trade-off there, that when you are trading away for your freedoms in exchange for free stuff, whether that security yep. is in the form of sort of physical protection or physical protection, like, like I like to say, you're giving up some freedoms that you're never going to get back. It's a one-way street. I mean, there's these wonderful sort of biblical parables and Aesop's fables that speak to exactly this, that once you, once you beg for a king, once you've given your personal autonomy and freedom over to an authority figure, that's it, you've lost it, that door is closed. It's a one-way door, it's not really a two-way door, not the way we've set up our governments and our legal and our legislative systems anyway. I think there's a very good point to be made that people do perhaps need to think a bit more carefully about what they are demanding gets done for them. I think it's also quite interesting to note how the role of government has shifted from being something that was supposed to sort of impose law and order to stop people from stealing your stuff and kidnapping your wife and killing you, for example, which was the sort of basic thing of government, to a role of actually more sort of paternalism and actually providing for people, which is very, very different from being a sort of a law and order to being a provider of jobs, of money, of healthcare, of the right not to get sick, which is, seems to be a new one, which is which is quite extraordinary. And maybe that is the society that most people want. And maybe people like myself need to just sort of shut up and fall in line because that's what everyone else wants, and we have to go along with it. We can't. I can't be be ironic and then say I, I my minority view needs to be taken over for everyone else, and everyone else should fend for themselves more. But perhaps people do need to be educated as to the terms and conditions of a lot of the policies they're voting for, the long term ones. You know, like on a jar of medicine, you kind of have to have a, you know, a, a contraindication sheet before it gets passed by, by, your, by your medical bodies to say you can take this drug. I don't think voters necessarily understand the, the, the side effects of the policies they're wanting. Because of course, everyone wants, wants free money. Everyone wants a bailout check. Everyone would like to make sure that everyone else stayed away from them and didn't make them sick. Well, not everyone understands that, that means being without an income for a year. It means becoming a state dependent. It means giving away your right to what you eat. You know, if the state is paying for your medical care, if the state is paying for your medical aid, they can tell you what where you're allowed to go and what speed you're allowed to drive on. You know, these are perhaps good things, but they they are a cost that comes with it. I'm not sure how how far that lesson has has sort of sunk in that democracy is not only about entitlements, it's also about 
responsibilities that go with it or or lack thereof there's there's definitely a trade there but um what i'm getting at here is perhaps some of those coming back to those sort of long-run consequences and things that we're looking at what are your thoughts on what has happened with the size of government globally because that's definitely a trend that we have seen and it's the size of government in terms of powers in terms of arbitrary powers in some cases rule by law in many many cases things like rules over what you're allowed to eat or drink like in my country we had prohibition last year because if they wanted more beds freed up in hospitals they said that people that are drunk tend to fill up more beds so that's it we had we had those toys taken <laughs> taken away from us yep. so that's some examples other examples of course are not just on the sort of physical protection side but also on the fiscal protection side we've seen massive increases in the size of government spending and the size of government's control over our economies so what are your thoughts on the sort of the long run consequences there and perhaps some of the, the next wave of risks we're baking into our system by trying to protect ourselves as citizens, just sort of delegating our responsibility and the from our own choices onto someone else? Because of course that's also very human too, right? If someone else is making the decision and it goes wrong, it's not my fault. It was the, the bad policymaker, although you were the one that delegated that authority to them. Yeah. What are some of those risks that you're looking at if you want to pick up on the physical or the physical side? that perhaps we need to be I, thinking about i think covid provides a really good example for us because it's it, it's been a wake-up call it's been a shot across the bows what if the next pandemic doesn't have a five percent mortality rate it has a 50 percent mortality rate what if the next pandemic uh is more like the plague that you're sick in the morning and dead by the afternoon what's what's that going to look like for us and we turn to government to say, well, we want you to fix all these problems and we want you to do it for free. Uh, and, and there's a degree of there, if, if you're in the group that does a lot of the pain, you have a very different view to if you're in the group that does a lot of the receiving, whether that's internationally, whether it's nationally, whether it's in a society or community, there are always some people that are receiving more from the system than they contribute to it. And that's easy to track in financial terms. Uh, it's a lot, of, uh, and then people talk about, well, you know, what about all the, the social good that's happening? That's a lot harder to track. So what do we use? We use money because it's an easy metric. We can count the number of dollars or whatever it is that, that's being used, pounds, whatever. Bureaucracies are a system, and every system's first function is to protect itself. So when you go to a bureaucracy and say, we'd like you to do X, oh, we'll need extra people for that and it'll cost about this bit. So people either make a decision that, yes, I'll vote for that policy or I won't, or sometimes the government that's in power just says, well, you voted for us, that's what I'm going to do. And I think it's very easy for people now because we live in such a complicated environment. When I, when I think about places I've worked in the South Pacific and, and parts of Africa, typically all the men in a particular village could build a house. If the house gets knocked down, they, they can build it rebuild it. If you go into most Western democracies, if the house gets knocked down, you're gonna have a chippy, a plumber, an electrician, somebody knows about cement. You need all these people to come together. And in the disaster setting, government says, we'll step in and we'll tell you how we're gonna do that. And we're gonna change the building codes and we're gonna do all these types of things. In countries that don't have all that, they tend to get on with it and they, they tend to be able to function. And as we become more and more specialized within our, our various jobs, we're able to do less and less outside our specialization. 
So you need somebody who can help you. You need somebody who can coordinate that. And we've learned to look to government as that's the group that's going to do that. Uh, and the number of times, you know, again, there's a COVID outbreak, we'll deploy the military. It's not the military's core function. They can do a lot of really interesting stuff. They've got lots of great kit. They've got lots of people. They can do stuff that very few other organisations can do at very short notice, but it's not their core function. And you, I think you're seeing in a lot of places, people being dragged into do non-core function. Those capacities and capabilities are being really stretched. But the other thing you get is people saying, I didn't join this particular organisation to, to do these particular types of activities. Uh, I didn't become a police officer to be a healthcare worker. I didn't become an infantry soldier to be a healthcare worker. I became a nurse to be a healthcare worker. So I, I think there's a lot in that space if we look to somebody and for many countries, it's let's look towards government. Uh, and if, if, if you sort of think back to the days of the, the Cold War, where one side was very heavily, it's, it's all about government and government will do the central planning and government will provide everything. Conversely, the other side was less like that. I think a lot of, organ, a lot of communities are now saying, well, we can't do this by ourselves. The private sector is not going to come and do it for us for free, but apparently the government will. What they don't necessarily realise is somebody is paying for that and they'll be paying for it in some way, shape or form. It, it may not be their money. It might be, well, there's no alcohol in that setting now, or you won't be allowed to eat these types of foods if you want these types of healthcare products. Uh, and I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to put limitations on some things that we know that are extremely harmful. But equally, if people really want to harm themselves, they'll find a way of doing it. Um, smoking in Australia has really decreased, but we have very strong laws, very high tax on cigarettes because of the healthcare issues from it. Uh, I personally, I'm not, a, I'm not against that, but a lot of people say, well, you know, I can't smoke in my office anymore. No, you can't because your behaviour impacts somebody else. And before we didn't worry about that too much, but now we've got metrics and measurable as to how it impacts. Uh, so what was a dominant group being smokers are now minority group. So you get yeah. this reality that there's now things they can't do because the dominant group says, well, no, you can't do that anymore. But it's, it, it's this interesting question, what are you actually giving up? When you say to government, I will agree to do A if you do B, I don't know what that's going to look like in 10 years' time or 20 years' time. So you know, countries that have given up conscription, as an example, uh, are they, will they be able to defend themselves in 20 years' time? Because the expectation is that government will just find a way of, of that happening. I want you to spend more money on this rather than on defence, okay, but we may not be able to provide all these other services to you uh, around disaster relief because the, the military is often used for those types of settings, depending on the, the, the country. There's not this think through of what are the secondary, that the people are just in the mindset of, I want A, therefore I need to do these things to get A. They don't necessarily think, and what's the downside of that? So there's this whole, as you said, contraindications around medication. We do, don't do counterfactuals of what's the downside of this. Uh, when you start to look at these things, we, we, we've got some assumptions that we're making. What are those assumptions? Um, I'm not sure listing all your assumptions helps, but it's useful to know what you're basing your decision on because there's a large amount that's unspoken. Uh, and trying to work out how that's going to flow. We talk a lot about unexpected, uh, unexpected outcomes, but some of them were anticipated. 
people think through and they go, well, these things could happen, but we just won't tell people about that because they might not vote for it. They might not think that's such a good yes. idea if they see the downside. And, and, and if I was selling you a car, I wouldn't tell you all the problems with the car. I'd just tell you all the good things about the car. If I was selling you a house, I wouldn't tell you the problems with the house. I'd just tell you the good things about the house. So I don't think that's, that, that's part of the, the way humans communicate. Um, and again, I, I come back to, we talk about, we've got to have diversity. If you're the maverick in the organisation that says, hmm, have we thought about these things? Have we thought about what could go wrong here? Don't be negative. You're just being negative. Well, it's worth working through what could go wrong. It's worth working through about the things that may not happen the way you expect them to. Uh, but I've, I, watch an, I've, I watched in one organisation, their comment was, bring all your mavericks in and listen to what they've got to say because they're normally the ones that care enough to talk to you about it as opposed to just shrug their shoulders, the silent moment. And they will help you solve the problems before you actually initiate the policy. I'm not sure governments are very good at doing that, of identifying the people that are problem children and saying, well, what do you think we could do to improve it before we launch it? But that's supposed to be the role of the, the citizen, of the, the voter in a democracy, is to interrogate the, the leadership because we are electing servants, really. We're not electing rulers. At least that's the, what democracy is in theory. The democracy is ruled by the people, for the people. It's not rule of the people by a bunch of elites that get to sit in a particular, you know, fancy auditorium once a week and sort of decree laws. But we seem to have a very skewed view of that. We seem to have lost the whole participatory part of democracy to a large extent. And I think a lot of that is to do with just surely the size of our countries. Perhaps there are ways, and maybe you've got a comment on this, in terms of ways to decentralize government, not, not talking in a blockchain, crypto sense, yep. but in a, bringing government closer towards the people and having smaller offices responsible for smaller regions, making smaller decisions that citizens are actually involved in doing. And of course, there are ways to use technology to, to allow us to, to have that. But, but what are your thoughts on that from a risk perspective? Do you think that we would be able to adapt better to risk while holding on to our sort of liberal Western democratic values if we found ways to decentralize some of the decision-making of our government systems? Would it increase our risks overall? Or is there some sort of balance to be found there? Do you have any comment on, I, on those sorts of ideas? I think there's a whole, whole piece there on how people become politicians. Uh, and we're increasingly seeing in a number of countries, I don't know that I like the term, but the political elite, people who have left university, who've gone into the party system, uh, they political advisors. Yeah. Well, not even necessarily a career, a career bureaucrat who's a professional public servant who then moves into government, but yeah. people that have found a way of getting into politics very early on and they stay, and they haven't had a job outside of politics. Same is true with some of the career bureaucrats and depending on what, bureau, what part of the bureaucracy and that may or may not be important. But I always find it interesting that you've got bureaucrats making commentary and decisions about the private sector. But they've never worked in the private sector. So that idea of having cross-pollination across various areas, and we now outsource a lot of our policy thinking. Once upon a time, that policy thinking would have happened within the bureaucracy, and that's not necessarily a good thing. But now we outsource it to a consulting firm that specialises in advising governments or a think tank uh, or you know, private foundations that will do your thinking for you. And if you've got a problem, you say, well, here's a million dollars. Go away for two years and come back and give us an answer. Again, there's no skin dollars? in the game. <laughs> Off you go. Uh, there's, there's no skin in the game as opposed to a, 
career bureaucrat that has to formulate the policy and then implement or oversee its implementation, there's a bit of a hang on, I'm going to have to think this through in a slightly different way. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have outside influence on the bureaucracy, but we've done a pretty good job of outsourcing thinking. And once you start outsourcing your thinking, you lose more interest. It's just, oh, well, they'll deliver a solution. Uh, we'll look at it, we'll go, it's probably not going to work, but that's what they reckon we should do. So that's what we're going to do. There's then the separate issue of how do you get people involved more in politics, you know, big P, how, how decisions are made. But if you, if you look at sort of humanity over, over thousands of years, humans have often gone, you're in charge, you make the decision. And in, in many ways, uh, pecking order comes from chickens, there's a head chicken. Dogs have a head of the pack. Uh, you know, and all animals have a different way of getting that, that power and, and uh, set up. And I, I think for a lot of people, they just look and go, yeah, you seem to know what you're doing, I'm happy to let you do it. Uh, as long as nothing bad is happening to me. Once something happens to them, they change their mind. But other than that, it's, well, yeah, you, you seem as though you know what you're doing. I'll, I'll let you get on with it. Just as the head chicken in the coop just picks all the other chickens when they don't do whatever they're supposed to be doing as chickens. Uh, and I, th I think we sometimes forget that we have a long history of just saying, you're in charge, we'll, we'll follow that. And we've done a very good, good job of conditioning people to that over an extended period of time. Uh, and one of the things that I'd observe is if, if you go back, I used to say 100 years, but that's only 1920, so maybe 150 years. If you went into many small towns, you'd have a lawyer, you'd have a doctor, you'd have a teacher, some form of religious leader chapel. They're probably the three smartest people in the town, the best educated, they'd seen other parts of the world. You go to a lot of small towns now and there's you know, pharmacists and accountants and there's quite a wide range of education. So the people who once upon a time they would have turned to, they're almost sport for choice. There's, there's a whole series of people that could do that. How do I find the one that I'm going to listen to? And the other issue is we've become very good at spin. So people listen to, who's the easiest to listen to? Who's got the best story? What seems most believable? When I've not only do I have my own life to deal with, but I've now got all this other stuff to deal with. And if you, if you look at something like climate change, there's that much science and different views and it can be interpreted differently. People just go, that's way too hard. All I know is it's getting hotter, it's getting drier, my garden doesn't grow. Uh, you say this will solve it, I'll solve it. But, but it's a complex system. So it's a bit like making a cake. You can't just say, well, I'll take the flour out now. Once the cake's the cake, it's the cake. To be able to just say, I'll take the chocolate bit out. You can't just do that. So we. We get to this point with things where people say, I just want something done. And so there's an intervention and people go, but there's no change. Because some of those changes are going to take a decade, two decades, three decades to see. So when you've still got you know, humans who are, you know, we, our, our lifespan is ex extending. But for many people thinking much more than about 20 years behind, never mind 20 years to the future, it's like, I just, that's just too hard. Uh, and I come back to, we've never seen anything like Google. Well, I'll try the British and Dutch East Indies companies. We, we've seen this before, not in this format, but the principles are fundamentally the same. Um, people say, yeah, but I've never heard of those organisations. Like, I like history, so I read history books. And I, but it, it's where do we get all this information from? And people say, oh, look at all this marvellous technology. Yes, it is marvellous. 
but there's a lot of stuff that had to happen to get to where we are today. Um, somebody didn't just wake up one morning and go, oh, digital camera and a mobile phone, that's what we need. Uh, they, they had bits and pieces to put together to come to that. Uh, if, if we'd never had phones before, we wouldn't have thought about a mobile phone. If we'd never had a camera before, nobody would have woken up and gone, digital camera, mobile phone, earbuds, it's a, it's a winner. We, we've had to get to it. And I think people really struggle when, they, when you start talking about, you just use the policy word. As soon as you say policy, 99% of people fall asleep. And the 1% of people go, oh, that'll be really interesting. And, and therein lies part of your problem because you've said policy. Uh, and it's you know, policy, procedure, directions. So we, have, we have a federal system. So you've got a federal government, a state government, and a local government. And I've gone to vote. And people behind me are saying, you know, I'm glad we're getting, I'm, I'm not voting for the, this prime minister. You think you're not because it's a state election. He's not even running. But they've got no real idea. It's, it's how do you, those basic civics that were once taught and don't seem to be taught anymore. Uh, we're being taught other stuff, but kids are being taught so much. What's the bit that they actually link into? My, my son's learning prime, prime numbers at the moment. He's saying to me, when am I ever going to use this? One day, it'll come to you. And I, th I think we, we really struggle with the amount of information that we're being given. It just washes over us. Uh, and you, you just scoot things on your iPhone, on your, your tablet or your computer or your phone, and everything's in snippets. And the media is getting better and better at giving it to you in bite-sized bits. So these long investigative pieces that once upon a time you would have spent uh, 15, 20 minutes reading three or four pages on a, on a, in a paper, people don't look for that now. Just give me the answer. What's, what's the snippet? And I don't think that's just government that's driving that. It's the marketers and, and the media and, and a whole series of others. And we've had some discussions in Australia recently about press ownership and freedom of the press and journalists' rights. And somebody said to me, the best way to guarantee freedom of the press is to own one. And then you can write whatever you want. Yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> but I, th I think that's what it really comes down to. It's, it's understanding that any, if you don't want to use the policy word, but any decision that is taken relies on really two things. It's understanding the trade-offs. The trade-offs of more of something means less of something else. And one of those big trade-offs we've seen right now is the trade-off between efficiency and resilience. So whether you're talking about like getting stuff easier as a citizen, but giving up a whole lot of your rights, or whether you're talking about the, the wonderful efficiencies of globalized supply chains, for versus the resilience of being able to actually be a self-sufficient country. Like I know New Zealand is one of the, the rare examples that they're able to go into total lockdown, sort of reliant on global supply chains as much as some other nations are. So it's understanding the trade-offs, those nth effects, like you were speaking about at the beginning, not just the immediate effect, but also the longer term effect. And who is affected? It might not be you. You might gain in the short term, but who loses in the long term? Understanding it. There's always a give and a take. There's no free lunches. But also understanding the incentives in play, the nudges, the the, the fear and greed narratives, the, the how you being played to buy into a particular decision regardless of the consequences. And those 
thinking skills are so important. They can be taught to anyone at any age. And I think we should spend a lot more time asking those sort of questions in our schooling system and in our general debates and in our media, if we are lucky enough to live in a liberal society, always asking who wins, who loses, when, and, and how are we being manipulated here? What is, what is the actual offer on the table and what is the spin? What is the story sort of sifting through that changes conversations altogether. But I've taken up a lot of your time today. I did want to ask you, as you said, right at the beginning, a couple of years ago, you were pointing out the biggest security threats to Australia in particular, and I think they're very similar to South Africa, given our very reciprocal climates, if not economic situations, is the threat of rampant wildfires due to climate change and the threat of another pandemic. And both of those happen to be natural world threats, things that we know, definitely not a black swan, if you want to use foresight jargon, they're things that we knew could happen, we didn't want to deal with. What are the next things that are keeping you awake at life at night as someone who looks at risk for a living? Are you concerned about wars and rumors of wars? Are you concerned like I am about economic bubbles that just seem to be getting bigger and bigger and fantasy economics that's taken over the world? Or are you still concerned about nature perhaps coming and giving us another curveball or a sterner warning next time? What is keeping you up at night? What is the next things we should be concerned about? I'm, I'm always concerned about what nature's going to throw at us. Uh, we've, as, as, a, as a species, we've convinced ourselves we control nature. So the Fukushima was a clear demonstration that's not the case. The pandemic, that's not the case. We're seeing, we, regardless of what your beliefs are on climate change, the climate is changing. So we, we know that. We also know as we're getting bigger populations, people are starting... Good, good land is good land. That's where everybody wants to live. So you're going to see a concentration of disasters. Now, will that disaster necessarily be caused by something natural? That, that's the interesting question. If you collapsed a country's infrastructure for a cyber attack, that's a disaster, particularly in the middle of a heat wave. Um, if you introduced a new bug, whether it's been engineered or whether it's been dug up because we're now starting to, to move more into remote parts of the planet that we haven't been in before, that that's a threat i think for me the the biggest issue is that these things are all in, are now all connected in some way uh they're systems of systems and when one part of a system starts to come under pressure and under stress other systems start to be affected what keeps me awake at night is we don't think in those terms we think in terms of silos uh, i'm going to think about bushfire then i'm going to think about this then i'm going to think about that and those, those really big things about well what does climate change mean uh, or a change in climate, if you prefer, if it does get hotter? What does it mean if it gets colder? What does it mean if the, the rain moves from one part of the country to another? Uh, because the thing is, once you get rain, grass grows, and then it dries out in the heat, and now you've got a fire risk. Uh, so you've, we, we've, we've known how to manage these things on a small scale. The question is now, how do we deal with them on a much bigger scale? Uh, and once upon a time, and you think that you think to the Cold War and even before the Cold War, when you spoke about national security, you spoke about it in terms of governments. Now you've got criminal groups, you've got uh, politically motivated violence uh, or terrorism, however you wish to prefer to. Um, you've also got other countries that have got interests. You've got countries that are saying about, well, your your economic interests and ours no longer no longer gel. So I'm going to use my economic power to, to change that for you. 
And we talk about the world order. Well, there are a lot of people that are a lot of a lot of powers that are now growing that weren't necessarily at the table when the world order, as we know it, was written up. Uh, it's the same with the laws of armed conflict. And you say, well, you know, you can't fight like this, but you know, Al Qaeda did, ISIS did. They weren't at the table. They weren't at the table to write up what are the rules that we're going to play by. And I, I think this is an increasing. This is going to be a big question for a lot of leaders of countries to say, now that this particular country is, is rising in the region or internationally or is exercising more power and they don't agree with the current world order, what does that mean? How do we, do we need to re renegotiate it? Uh, like Western liberal democracies are a relatively small part of the world when you consider the population of the world and what various parts of the world believe. And I think it's very easy for people who come from a Western background to go, this is just great. It may well be great, but when you remove an authoritarian leader from an area that only knows authoritarian leaders, they're not going to replace them with what I recognise as a democratic process. They're going to replace them with something different. It's, you know, we've, we've gone into Afghanistan and we've, there's been, they want to democratise Afghanistan. Over 20 years, it wasn't going to turn into Norway, and that's the way we run as a democracy. There's a lot of deep culture. There's a lot of history there. There's a lot of beliefs about the way things should be. I think it's very easy for people just to put a stamp on that. So what keeps me up at night? What's going to happen in the nature space uh, and, and what that's going to mean for us? Because as rising sea levels, we're going to see people wanting to move away from countries, you know, whether they move in an orderly fashion or whether they don't. But the other thing that keeps me awake at night is just starting to realise that we talk about diversity and we want, a, we want a world where we embrace everybody's ideas and then suddenly realising actually there's a whole heap of ideas that we don't like out there. You can't just stamp, there's a midway point there. You can't just stamp them as wrong and therefore we're not going to do them, but we want to embrace everybody. What's, what's that midway point? What's that going to look like? And who's going to influence that space? And I'm, I'm not sure some of the people we elect to senior positions have enough mental capacity to work through those issues. I'm not sure if you really like dealing with complex problems that you choose politics as your career path. Very interesting. So what would you say to people that are listening to this call, ordinary citizens, what questions should they be asking of their policymakers, of their leaders, of their governments? And are there things that perhaps they should be pushing back against when it comes to more sort of arbitrary laws that are that are coming into place? So those big decisions over those big questions that you've mentioned, things like responses to climate changes and responses to the shifting world order, which we've spoken about on this show quite a bit. What what should citizens be doing or what should they be watching out for at this point? Do you have any advice so, other than so getting people to think I, for themselves? <laughs> I ask a very simple question. What if what if it doesn't happen the way you're telling me it's going to? What if it is worse? What if it's better? Uh, what if it does last for more than two weeks? What's that going to look like? And and just getting people to ask that question, what if? Because we're, what, what we're sold is, and we've spoken about lockdown. This will be done and dusted in two weeks. Yeah, what if it's not? Uh, we'll have the vaccine and everybody will be vaccinated by the end of 2021. What if that doesn't happen? Uh, you know, oh, everybody will get access to a vaccine around the world because that's how we are as humans. What if they don't? Because we're not like that as humans. We've never been like that as humans. Uh, and I, go, I think it was Yuval Harari again that says there are only two types of people in the world. 
people like me and people not like me. And if you like me, I understand you, you're my friend, I'm happy to help you. If you're not like me, I don't understand you and you're not my friend and I'm far less likely to help you. And that's not necessarily even a, different nationalities. That can be people in the same suburb that have very different views on a particular topic or people in the same city. Uh, and I, I think the question that I encourage people to ask is, you know, what, what if that doesn't happen? What if we are wrong? What, and, and what does wrong look like? Uh, and Gary Kleine's work on pre-mortems. Yeah, what does total disaster look like? Uh, before you tell, it's all going to be awesome, great. But what would a total disaster look like if we go down this path? And if you if you look at something like uh, the tsunami in Fukushima, uh, they did probability assessments around. And the probability is so low they said we don't need to worry about this until it happened, and then they need to worry about it. Really? So the question of what if it does actually happen? What if all the mitigations we have in place don't work? What's that going to look like? What if? That's a great way to end this. Uh, last thing, Andrew, where can people find, find you if they want to converse with you, if you want to share your details or remain yeah, anonymous? LinkedIn's the easiest way to find me. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show with us. This is The Small Print. Thank you, Brian.